0: Hi and welcome to the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon. Today you'll hear an interview I did with Diamondbacks catcher center fielder Dalton Varsho about his impressive defensive versatility. Our VP of Baseball Bobby Scales joins us. He knows the Varsho family well. He also gives us a baseball history lesson about a Hawaiian-born player with a giving spirit. And we'll be joined by my former colleague at ESPN Stats, Paul Hempikidis. You see him regularly now on Get Up with Mike Greenberg. We'll talk about the most interesting things in baseball from the season's first two months. Let's get to it. This week's guest is Diamondbacks catcher and center fielder Dalton Varsho. Dalton's off to a really good start this year among the top 10 position players in war. He's the son of a major leaguer named after a major leaguer. We always ask players this as our inaugural question. Uh, Can you share your memory of the first really good defensive play that you made, regardless of what position you were playing at the time?
1: can't remember exactly a play but I just remember kind of like the first time when I was really young five years old and I was actually throwing out the first pitch so it's not really a defensive play but like I remember five years old it was my birthday in Reading Uh, my dad was the manager there and double a for the Phillies so I remember throwing out the first pitch and uh, just a little squirt back then.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, did you go, did you like, was it evident that your skills were good enough that you could go all the way out to the mound at age yep, five? I,
1: I, yep, five years old, I went straight to the mound. I was like, Mm-mm, I'm, not, I'm not taking this short path. So, yeah.
0: so that foreshadows your future career because you need that kind of an arm to be a catcher and a center fielder, certainly. Um, what's the origin story that dates back to you as far as learning both positions goes?
1: I mean, I always loved playing catcher ever since I was little could always control the game and kind of went at my own speed. And I think that's why I enjoyed it. I didn't really start playing outfield till really start playing. Um, 2019, I was in Jackson, Tennessee, and they wanted to see what I could do in the outfield. But um, in college, my manager there was Scott Duffick. um, He put me in the outfield just to kind of give me a break off my legs when either we were up by a lot or down by a lot. So um, just doing a little bit there. And I didn't really realize how – good I kind of would be uh, until this year when I kind of started playing more center field to start the year off.
0: What uh, What did your dad, what wisdom did your dad, Gary Ver show uh, impart upon you as far as trying to play both spots?
1: He didn't really kind of push me for both spots. I mean, I always enjoyed catching and with him not being a catcher, I mean, I learned a lot from just watching other guys and um, just trying to be an athlete. I, I don't really try to do or emulate anybody i just try to be the best athlete i can and uh, just trust that it's going to be really good
0: what's a day in the life like for you when you're playing catcher
1: a little bit more information based trying to understand who the lineup is and how to be able to work the pitcher through it and going over scouting reports and a lot of stuff like that uh while outfield is kind of more of okay this guy hits the ball here and just understanding all right looking in the outfield all right trying to understand who's out there because um It's just different. Catching is a little bit more mental and strategic, and I still take a lot of what I know back there, and I kind of take it out to outfield with me and trying to play along with the game of understanding how our pitchers normally have their sequencing and trusting that I kind of can get to baseballs in certain ways that I can just be able to read what pitch is going to come next. So being able to understand our starters, I think a little, little bit helps me out in center field.
0: Well, I was going to ask if the ability to, when you're watching the game as a catcher, like you're watching the game from two completely different angles does one particularly help you with the other
1: um I would just say they both kind of mesh together a little bit because what I do as a catcher you obviously look at the whole defense and you're like all right like you might be able to move somebody a little bit just to be able to call the what pitch you really want to and uh, understanding the location of the pitcher hitting their spot you want to hit towards the defense instead of the mistake that the pitcher makes, yeah, then you can't really make up defense because of the mistake. But on the outfield, you try to be able to understand who the hitter is at the plate and understanding how this pitcher's been working and being able to put both of them together. So I think playing outfield, going from catching to outfield, probably has helped me a little bit making some better reads while just understanding a little bit where outfielders are placed. I can also understand catching-wise how I can try to be able to force me a pop-up or a ground ball and understanding defensive positioning
0: are you aware of and do you appreciate your uniqueness as a as an athlete
1: I don't really think anything of it I just I just know that I enjoy doing it and I trust trust my athleticism to be able to kind of go back and forth and uh all I can really do is just ask myself to just be uh, safe in both positions and trust my ability
0: I found a sliding catch that you made as a catcher this year against Luis Guillorme, and you had a really nice catch against Justin Turner to rob him of a double. Uh, those are two of the plays on your highlight reel this year. Do you have a favorite defensive play?
1: Not really. I just, I just kind of just play baseball. I enjoy the game. There are plays that kind of recall back in my head and I, catching that Justin Turner baseball at the wall. I mean, that was a pretty good play that I, I just was pretty psyched about and I tried not to show it and I just try to keep a level head and stay humble about it. But I look back and it's like, it's, it's a pretty cool thing to do. And to be able to make certain plays, uh, it, it just helps our pitchers out a lot. And that's all I can do for them.
0: Have you stolen a home run yet?
1: I don't think I have robbed a home run yet. I've been close. There's been balls that are like pretty borderline, but. Okay. We have
0: the stat cast numbers and they showed that you rate among the best uh outfielders in baseball with regards to reaction time, first second and a half that the ball's off the bat, and then you're really high end in that next second and a half too. I'm curious what work you've put in to allow you to get such good jumps on balls.
1: I think it's just a lot of controlling what you can control and knowing that in BP, that's kind of the most live reads you're going to get. So I try to take advantage of that the most. And again, it goes back to being a catcher and understanding what our pitchers do well and um, knowing that I'm going to try to get the best jump I can on the pitches that they make correctly instead of their mistakes. And so I think that's what I try to do the best of understanding that they're going to make their pitch on the mound. And I got to be able to catch that little bloop single or just a couple other things or just getting to the baseball fast enough to where I can make the catch instead of kind of kind of coasting and um, kind of, that's what Dave McKay always talks about. Don't coast towards the baseball like, Get to the baseball get underneath it and make a good throw back into the infield i was going to ask
0: what influence that uh, the outfield coaches had on you
1: he he just kind of keeps saying to us just hit the cutoff man that's a that's a really big one for us just hit the cutoff man and then because our middle infielders have some really strong arms like all we can do in the outfield is to get the ball get it in as quick as possible because then they make their reactionary th- play So I've had conversations with our outfield coach of kind of where to play and where I like to play. And he's been really good about it, of understanding that not everybody's in the same in the outfield and being able to make those adjustments per person has been awesome.
0: What's it been like to catch Mad Bum and Zach Gallen?
1: Uh, That was actually my first time catching uh, Madison. Um, So it was actually pretty fun to be able to do that. And uh, it was it was fun. Uh, I know he didn't start off as well as he wanted to. But I mean, he was going to actually go back out for another inning. So uh, he pitched actually really well after that first couple rough three innings, but found, found himself and I understand the rhythm, understood how he wanted pitched, And uh, we were able to work through that. And um, Zach threw, Zach's been throwing the ball really, really well. And he's always been fun to catch. He's got elite stuff and um, it's been a lot of fun to be able to kind of catch him for the past two years. What's
0: it like to catch a guy like Zach Davies, who's so good at, at uh, not allowing the stolen base?
1: Yeah, I think. Catching Davies is one of, one of the interesting ones because he's able to, when he's really good, he's able to place his fastball and change up in pretty much the same exact location and coming out of the sand looks exactly the same. So being able to understand he's kind of a two-pitch guy and being able to manipulate what he does really well and also sprinkle in what uh, he doesn't do really well, which is throwing his breaking ball and his throwing his cutter every once in a while just to get hitters off balance a little bit. Being able to manipulate what, what he does really well to go through a big league lineup. I mean, it's pretty special what he's able to do.
0: Two other quick questions for you. Um, have you have you put Pitchcom to use?
1: Uh, yes.
0: And how have you found it?
1: I really wanted to hate it. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty old school with with a lot of that stuff. I wanted to dislike it, but I actually really did like it because it does some things that you're not really able to do at a quicker quicker instance of when the pitcher's not looking at you you're able to call some pitches and I think it gives them a little bit of time to kind of like relax on the mound instead of sometimes when you don't have that same rhythm and timing and understanding what they want to throw then it just kind of mixes that that rhythm up and it it just kind of gives them the ability to like not have to look at signs and it's just like okay that's what I want to throw and you pick a location so it's like being able to control all of that is it's pretty cool, um, but we only do it with a runner on second just because I think that we can normally can just call signs. Nobody can be able to see them from first and third and being able to do a lot of those things. So, And
0: there's a there's a comfort level with doing it, it the old way, right. Yeah, uh, I mean, all right, last question. You caught a no-hitter last year. From a defensive perspective, what was that like?
1: Unlike anything, anything that you can really explain, you have to be in the moment to understand how much adrenaline is throwing – flowing through your veins and for tyler gilbert to be able to do that and he got he got there was a lot of luck on his side and you understand that and a lot of those no hitters and perfect games there are luck but it was a pretty cool opportunity for not just me but for him and his family to be there and uh first first career start i mean that was pretty special
0: when you're when you're finishing that one out last couple outs, were you able to block everything out and just focusing on in on the moment
1: i think when that last ball was hit i kind of blocked everything out after that but I think it was normally like to the seventh, eighth inning. I was like, wow, we actually have a chance of doing this. And uh, I was like, I'm not going to change anything that I've been doing. I'm just going to still call the game how I have been. And, you know, I'll just trust how everything's going.
0: Nice. Uh, Excellent. Uh, Dalton Varsho, thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck the rest of the season.
1: Thank you.
2: Appreciate it.
0: Here's what Diamondbacks manager Torrey Lavulo said impressed him most about Varsho. Yeah,
2: I think probably his athleticism. His ability to connect with, um, connect with the game
1: and get a feel for what's happening, whether he's catching a ball 150 times or making plays in center field, he has a he has a great way to to impact the baseball game.
0: So we welcome in the VP of Baseball for Sports Info Solutions, Bobby Scales, for his week uh, for his regular segment uh, on this podcast, and I want to talk about Dalton Varsho and his father. uh, But you know his father, former major leaguer, major league coach. Uh, You know him well.
3: I do. is unbelievable. Dad Gary. uh, What what a outstanding baseball man. Uh, When you think about you know baseball men, you know in this game and upstanding dudes, just good people, hard work, lunch pail. Uh, always prepared, going to push you hard, going to demand the best of you. It's Gary Varsho. Um I, I had Gary, the first time I came in contact with him, he was the first base coach in Philadelphia uh, with the Major League Club when I was in Scranton in 2006. And so I went to Major League Camp then and um, great, you know, great experience there. He was on Charlie Manuel's staff. And I was working out in the outfield. I did, play played, you know, I was a utility guy, so I played all over. So you know, a couple of days a week, I'd go in the outfield and work with him, and, and he put you through the paces, man. He was not playing around. It was, it was work, but it was calculated work. It wasn't just work to, to be out there working and doing stuff. So it was always a method to what he was doing. Um, he was also the base running instructor there too, and, and it was the same, the same level of excellence he expected from you in the outfield is what he expected for you uh, on the, on the base pass. So um, just uh, so much respect for him. Uh, I, I worked with, alongside with him uh, in LA. He was a scout when I was farm director there. And then I came to Pittsburgh and he ended up there too. Uh, he was a scout with Pittsburgh when I was a uh, uh, field coordinator there. So just uh, so much respect for, for, for Varsh uh, and, and his son is, is off to a solid start in his major league career.
0: Yeah, let's talk about some of the things that uh, that he talked about. And I guess first, when I asked him if he appreciated his athleticism, I kind of figured that he wasn't necessarily going to say yes to that. But other people, yourself included, um, what is the level of appreciation that you have for the fact that he can catch and play center field?
3: I think that people don't understand the level of athleticism you have to have to be behind the plate to do what these guys are doing now. Um, and even in the past, I mean, the ability to block the ability to move in small spaces. I mean, to, to recognize spin on a breaking ball that's in the dirt and then shift your weight and, and, and block these balls to come up out of that stance and throw. And now these guys are in the, on the, the various different one knee stances they're in, they have to come up, they have to throw, they're still expected to block balls in the dirt. Um, it's ridiculous, but then Dalton's ability to come from behind the plate and go to center field. He's not going to a corner he's not going to right. He's not going to left. He's not going to play third base. I mean, you've seen Craig Biggio. Uh, he went out to second base and became a, a, an all-star second baseman uh, to to go to center field is a whole nother level of, of athleticism. And I think it, it takes uh, it takes some, it takes some, some guts to use him in that manner. So, you know, obviously that staff out there, uh, you know, Tori Lovello and then that staff in the front office have probably got their heads together and said, Hey, let's, let's try it. And it's worked out for him.
0: I mentioned the, Things in which he's excelling by the stat cast metrics, the getting good jumps on balls, the, uh, the aggressive pursuit uh, of fly balls, the, the numbers are very good for him there. Uh, I know that outfield play is one of these high priority things for you. So when you're watching uh, someone like him in the outfield, what are the things that you're watching?
3: Well, first of all, I think that you have to understand that there's three real components. There's, there's getting off the ball right? There's getting off the ball is your raw reaction time. You know, how, how quickly are you actually moving in a direction that is towards, uh, where the ball is hit? The second piece is what I call getting on the route. So taking a proper angle to the, to the expected flight path of the ball. Right. And, and then, and then the last thing is, is just understanding, uh, the the total picture in the outfield. I mean, it's more than just running to the spot and catching the ball, his ability to get off the ball. And with solid reaction time, not being a full-time outfielder is, 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 is silly. And, and you know, it's funny because I, I always used to preach to the guys I coached. It was get off the ball, get on the route, get off the ball, get on the route. They're one in the same, get off the ball, get on the route. So he gets off the ball, he moves. And there's, you can see this in some of the stat cast data. He gets off the ball and he gets on the proper route. Some guys get off the ball. Some guys don't get off the ball. They get on the route. So the three, the three real areas are, you know, getting the reaction time, Root efficiency and the speed, right? You have some guys there. There were outfielders that that didn't really get off the ball that well. They don't take great efficient routes, and but they have such tremendous catch up speed that you know it makes up for it. But um, his ability to 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 be you know good enough in all three areas is 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 pretty good, especially like I said when he's doing a, a fair share of catch too.
0: Now, as a player evaluator, the role that you, you've previously been in, mm-hmm. he's 5'10, about 5'10, 205 pounds. Mm-hmm. That's not your ideal center fielder body, right? Like maybe nowadays, no, it's not
3: It's not. Billy Hamilton running out there, right. no. Uh, but no, I mean, and it, it again, it speaks to his God given athleticism. You can't teach that. You can't teach. I mean, it's a good, it's a good size dude. I mean, that's, you know, 5'10", 205. That's, that's a healthy dude, you know, and I'm sure it's put together and, uh, but it is, it's not, it's not not 6'2", 205, which is a little bit leaner type body type. It's not, you know, it's not Byron. It's been on our program too.
0: The show's coming out June 2nd. We missed our opportunity to talk about uh, Asian American and Pacific Island Heritage Month. uh, And I wanted to do that uh, because that was the month of May. We'll talk about Pride Month uh, at a later point. And you've played in Japan. Uh, You've had teammates who were uh, Japanese. Uh, It's not just Mm -hmm. Japan that we're talking about here. It's the Pacific Islands as well. There's one guy you wanted to focus on in particular that I think is good. It's a good history lesson for us. Uh, Who's Mike Lum?
3: Uh, Mike Lum, first of all, Mike Lum is one of the best humans I know. I've, I've heard of Mike Lum so many times throughout my career through friends who played had, had him as a hitting coach, uh, uh, friends who were coaches under him. I finally, when I got to Pittsburgh in 2018, Mike was a senior advisor to player development. Mike had a really good and really long uh, big league career. Let's not forget that. Sometimes you get so far away from it that you forget these guys are really good players too. Mike was a really good player uh, for a number of years. The the second piece is uh, he decided he wanted to go into teaching the, the, the art, the craft of hitting. And Mike was a person that it was just that it was a craft he studied his craft tireless worker um, and it wasn't just educating the players it was educating the coaches and pushing them and driving them to be better coaches and demanding they up their game in their craft one of the things that when I got to when I got to Pittsburgh in 18, like I said, Michael's—he was an old—he's an older gentleman. He's in the seventies now, but he was still—I mean—he's still uniformed up every day. He was still in the cage, to do, you know, throwing BP, tossing flips. But more, the biggest impact he had was the work he was doing with our young hitting coaches uh, at that time, making them challenging those guys every single day to be better hitting coaches. I mean, there's a lot of new stuff in hitting, right? And it, it wasn't one thing that we get confronted a lot with is school. Metrics and numbers versus old school eyeball tests. Well, one thing that he always felt like was if you're not blending both, if you're not uh, teaching what's happening right now today in today's game to today's players, you're not going to be effective. So, I mean, it it was he shared his whole library of hitting stuff with me on a thumb drive. Like He said, come get it. And this is all of his knowledge that he written down the papers he had written, you know, notes he had written, video he had taken. Just the giving spirit that Mike has, uh, the giving spirit, the the teaching spirit that he has. Uh, we talked about caretaker of the game. He's a caretaker of the game. And I just had so much respect for him. I used to talk to him every time I was going to the Bradenton. He stayed in Bradenton all year to help the young players and the young coaches. Uh, but he he was so giving, so knowledgeable. It was just a joy to be around. Uh, and, and you know he's still out and he's out and he's retired now. He's out in San Francisco living. And just hanging out. But I'm sure he's probably walking past a little league field somewhere uh, telling a kid to stay balanced or something. But uh, that's that's who he is.
0: 15 year major leaguer Mike Lum, the first American uh, player of Japanese heritage to play in the major leagues, the fourth player from Hawaii to play in the major leagues, setting the path for those that followed. Got those details from his Saber Bio, uh, part of the Saber Bio Project uh, listings that you can find online. Uh, Bobby Scales, thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, We'll see you in two weeks.
3: Mark, always a pleasure.
0: I want to tell you about our basketball podcast, Playing in Space with Henry Ward. Each week, Henry talks about the NBA from different perspectives. Recently, he spoke with Vic Law, who played briefly in the NBA and now plays in Australia. Henry's also done stuff on trends, team building, and playing approaches. That's playing in space, wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget about our football podcast, Off the Charts, with Matt Menacharian, which blends the scouting and the stats to share deep insights about the game of football. We're joined by Paul Hembakidis, you know him as Hembo, Get Up on ESPN. He's the show's content producer. Hey, Paul, how are you?
2: I am doing outstanding, my friend. How is everything?
0: I'm great. Uh, I'm looking forward to having this quick chat with you here about the first two months of the season. Questions are Hmm. pretty simple. Through two months, first question, who's the most interesting hitter in the majors?
2: The most interesting hitter in the majors, for my money at least, is Trevor Story. And that might be a curious answer because he's someone we obviously know an awful lot about. He's been in the league for years. He reached free agency in the offseason. We have all sorts of data on Trevor Story. But his season so far has been sort of Jekyll and Hyde, as we all know. In the month of April, his OPS was 596. And in the month of May, it was 842. So I'm not sure that we even know the answer to the question yet. Was he a product of Coors Field? And which player is he? Because there was a lot of concern coming out of Boston early in the month of May that this $140 signing was a total bust, which I frankly agreed with at least at the time. He's also a player who your metrics had as uh, graded very highly uh, for many of his years playing shortstop. And he's not even doing that for the Red Sox. There's a much lesser shortstop in Xander Bogarts uh, over there, of course, defensively. So it makes me very curious, given the context of everything, what does his future look like there? What does the future of Xander Bogarts look like there? And the sort of overlapping uh, narrative thereof fascinates me moving forward this season and, of course, into the future.
0: So maybe Fenway isn't the best place to answer the question, what kind of hitter is Trevor's story, right? Because it's, mm. it's, it's a favorable hitter's park. Uh, certainly because he can bang, bang balls off the monster. Uh, it did take him a little a little bit to get going. I think that's a, a pretty fair choice because he very much has been Jekyll and Hyde. And it's kind of funny that as he's gone, the Red Sox have gone too, right? Like mm. uh, like Boston, the, the Red Sox were floundering and all of a sudden he hits three home runs in a game and it's suddenly like, okay, you can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel here for this team.
2: I agree with that entirely because you know JD Martinez is going to hit and has. The same goes for Bogarts and Rafael Devers. But look, when you invest 140 million dollars into a player, you expect them to be an impact bat in the middle of your lineup. In, in his case, you just do. And for the longest time, he just wasn't doing that at all. You're right. Fenway Park is not the perfect barometer here, but obviously, we all know. You know, we've all seen the you know the Coors Field splits, and that's kind of a common thing for a lot of great players like Matt Holliday and Nolan Arenado and Carlos Gonzalez, and the list goes on and on and on. But in his case, I remain fairly skeptical because i'm not sure there's any quality any 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 area in terms of that slash line the average the on base or the slug that i view as being obviously above average so we're gonna have to wait and see so
0: i'm gonna take taylor ward as the most interesting Mm. hitter of the first two months of the season and i'll I'll profess quasi ignorance and that i don't watch the angels every day but the numbers for him have been off the charts and i was like okay it was is this are, are we looking at something for April, May that's like 90% April, 10% May? And it's not. It's more like it's like 60-40. He did tail off a little bit in May, but not to the point where you, where he's kind of like back to what he was before this season. Now, he was a first-round pick, uh, so the potential was there for him to be a very good hitter. He had just not shown it uh, prior to this season. And the thing this year, I'm just looking at it right now, he's crushing mistakes Like you would typically expect a hitter to be in that three, you know, uh, low 300s, mid 300s range uh, for pitches middle of the plate. And he's in the 430s and the 440s on all the, you know, the hit charts uh, that you can generate for Mm. him there. I'm wondering if that's sustainable, you know, maybe it's sustainable for Paul Goldschmidt. I don't know that it's necessarily sustainable for a Taylor Ward. So I guess that interests me from the first two months of the season and his being a key you know, besides Otani and Trout and uh, some of the other guys that have stepped up for them, uh, the fact that they got something from a completely unexpected is, I think, what's helping power them uh, to this good start in the AOS.
2: Yeah, that's a great choice because, I mean, look, for about a month there, Taylor Ward was matching Mike Trout swing for swing. Now, is that sustainable? Obviously not. But what the Angels need more than perhaps any contender in the league is for some of their ancillary players to step up. We know that Mike Trout and Shohei Otani are going to do their thing and they're going to produce a ton of value. But the Angels don't have a deep enough system, nor do they have a deep enough big league club to be able to afford just those two guys producing. If Taylor Ward can approximate his first two months over the next four, I think this team has a real chance to be in contention and be playing meaningful games at the end of September. But I do think he could be a catalyst for this team down the stretch. I'm not betting on him doing it but there are some encouraging metrics that suggest well maybe this guy's a lot better than we may have thought
0: at the time that we're taping an eleven forty-five ops this
2: season all
0: mm-hmm. right let's move to the to the pitching side uh who's your most interesting pitcher through the
2: first two months of the season nestor cortez who i mean might be one of the five best pitchers on the planet right now which is crazy considering sort of his anonymous his anonymous upbringing if you will into the big b but right now the era is 17 the league is opsing if i can use that as a verb 513 against him. But the reason I'm so fascinated by Nestor Cortez is because he does not have the kind of profile when it comes to stuff that most of the best pitchers across baseball do, as we well know. But there's a couple aspects of his approach, if you will, that I sort of find interesting. And I'm always fascinated by people who have a lot of success when they do things non-traditionally. First of all, despite not having that kind of wipeout stuff, he is attacking the strike zone. His first pitch strike rate is 70% this year. It's one of the highest rates in the league. He is relying largely on sort of a fastball-cutter mix instead of a, a fastball breaking speed mix, if you will, which is also something of a rarity today because you see so many hammers across the sport. And he's also benefiting from a really good Yankees defense. Uh, right now, the league has a, owns a BABIP of 234 against Nestor Cortez. Is that sustainable? No, probably not. I mean, you're the, you're the DRS guy, so uh, you know better than anybody. But I do think there is something to be said about uh, one's ability to keep the baseball off the barrel I'm sort of fascinated by the notion of pitchers using a fastball cutter hybrid into the future, like sort of like uh, blending, if you will, those two pitches, because you might not get the strikeout numbers that you would otherwise get, but if there's a good defense behind you, and you can keep the baseball off the barrel, you can get me 21 outs every fifth day and you'll take hundred of those guys.
0: And he's been fantastic. And we're going to go essentially somewhat twins on the, who we're picking here because hmm. uh, my choice for most interesting pitcher through the first two months of the season. Uh, Martin Perez, 1.42 ERA through 10 starts this season. Perhaps the most amazing thing about him entering the day that we're taping this, 63 innings pitched, no home runs allowed. Remarkable. Really Mm. amazing that he's been able to do that so far. And again, going to Baseball Savant and checking out the heat maps for his pitch locations, like they're completely different uh, from last year. Much more stuff away, uh, change up, uh, the cutter is more in, is in the middle of the plate, but anything other than that, much more away, 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 keeps ball, keeps balls away from right-handed hitters. Uh, they have not been able to square him up. The line drive percentage against him is very low. He has been uh, nothing short of amazing this season. And in looking, I, I was just looking at this right before we taped, and I can tell you that he did it against the Rays, seven scoreless. He did it against the Astros, a, a complete game shutout, a shutout. Uh, I should say. Uh, And he did it against the Red Sox, six innings, one run. So, and he did it against the Phillies, seven innings, no runs. So he's getting it done against everybody, the good and the bad and and everybody in between. Uh, And I'll put him as my most interesting pitcher. You go with that?
2: I like that. Yeah. Oh, and if the Rangers wind up being better than we think he might be the biggest reason why Look, they spent half a billion dollars on Corey Seager and Marcus Semien. But to date, he has been their very best player, and and if you take a peek at the standings, they're in better shape than most of us thought. I don't know if he can carry a rotation over the course of six months. I highly doubt it. But unlike Cortez, who is a high-profile prospect that has sort of first division stuff, if you will, so maybe I'm a little bit more convinced, potentially, that some of this is sustainable into the summer months, unlike Nestor Cortez, who I think is sort of dancing with the devil a little bit and sort of the beneficiary of some batted ball luck to date.
0: Two games behind the Angels uh, in the AL West, which is essentially, uh, that means the sixth spot uh, in these expanded playoffs. So you've done the typical ESPN thing. You've gone Yankee Red Sox for your for your, your uh, pitcher and your hitter. Uh, and I've covered your East Coast bias by picking players from outside of uh, the East Coast. For most interesting fielder, who you
2: got? Oh, you're going to be stunned to hear that my answer to this question. <laughs> Is the Yankees' very own Aaron Judge. And I'm going to tell you why. This one is a little bit less based upon the metrics and more based upon just anecdotal observation here. Aaron Judge is the biggest position player in the history of baseball. He stands six foot seven and weighs 280 pounds. And that guy has never existed. Never. Alexander Cartwright never saw a human being as big as Aaron Judge. And yet he is passing as a center fielder. Like, no, the metrics aren't in love with Aaron Judge and no one's going to sign him to a $300 million contract to play center field for them in the future. But the fact that he's on pace to hit 61 home runs as things stand today, while being able to fake it at minimum in center field speaks to a remarkable bit of athleticism that if I were his representation, I would be selling to my future employers because look, I guess it's no different than the Chris Bryant conversation, although obviously judges bat is much better, but look, if Aaron judge compare premium power with the ability to play a high quality defense, potentially in center field in a pinch, That is the rarest of rare players. Baseball, as it was originally conceived, Mark, as you well know, was built for players that look like you and me. It wasn't uh, conceived for players that look like defensive linemen. Aaron Judge is an anomaly. And watching him rob a home run from Shohei Otani this week was sort of um, all the reinforcement I needed. This guy is a one-of-one. He is a singular talent. Now, you obviously track these things much more closely than I do. Is it realistic? to expect Aaron Judge to be able to play a passable center field over a long durable period of time? Or is that something of a pipe dream?
0: That's a good question. And we have written about uh, things like that, whether moving, uh, I think the average corner outfielder moving to center field, that the conversion rate was somewhere in the neighborhood of eight runs saved. And if Aaron Judge uh, can match that, he's probably all right there based on his track record from 18, 19, and 21. I don't know if he can match that. He's played 300 innings there. Thus far, he really, by our metrics, I mean, that that's kind of small to judge. There's nothing particularly impressive and there's nothing necessarily scary about what he's done so far. That'd be interesting. Uh, and that'd be an interesting way to sell him because I guess uh, you could certainly uh, pitch for more money uh, if you are uh, looking for a center fielder rather than a right fielder. What about the most
2: interesting team? Most interesting team, Mark. And look, I'm going to venture way far off the East Coast here. <laughs> I'm kidding. The Philadelphia Phillies are the most interesting team. And as you know, they are my favorite team. Uh, I am not the least bit surprised that the Phillies are struggling this year because as I put on the radio today, the Phillies are the worst designed, <laughs> meant to be good baseball team that I can possibly remember. In 2011, the Philadelphia Eagles, my favorite football team, signed every uh, high-profile free agent that offseason in the the uncapped year. They called it the dream team, and the results were awful. Well, the Phillies are suffering the same fate. Right now, the Phillies are minus 31 by your metric, defensive run saved, which is considerably worse than any other team in the sport. They rank 27th in defensive efficiency. They rank 27th in batting average on balls in play allowed. When you build a team the way that the Phillies have built a team, you are presupposing that your lineup is going to be dominant, a behemoth. And you are taking into account that the defense was going to be bad and that the bullpen especially was going to be bad because you did not devote resources there. And so I think it's a very instructive case study. We're only two months in, but there are fewer balls in play now than ever before in the history of baseball. Many have argued that because of that, we should de-emphasize defense what i have learned over the last several years is the exact opposite the scarcity of balls in play gives teams with good defenses a leg up for that very reason the phillies are suffering uh i I think from what i would describe as sort of a one-dimensional building approach they're already paying for and there is no obvious reasons for me to believe that they're going to turn it around anytime soon
0: if you watch the phillies post-game shows they are highly entertaining, I have to tell you. They might be the... If we were going to sabermetrically rank the, the post-game shows across baseball, I think that the Phillies, where they might be defensive run save 30, I think post-game show, they, they might be number one. I'm I mean, trying... they're, the,
2: they're the freaking Cleveland Spiders, my friend. Mike, <laughs>
0: Who's Who's the most interesting team in baseball through two months? I will say... Boy, this is hard. So I I was kind of leaning Padres just because this is essentially, I'm avoiding the East Coast, and it's essentially a replication of where they were last year, somewhat at this time, except with a number one pitching prospect and a closer who's been fantastic lights out so far and an older player in Hosmer who's been much better than you would have thought at an MVP candidate in Machado, and I guess the intrigue there is just whether or not they have the collapse that they had at the end of uh, last season, or if they're able to see it through and win 95 games and be mm. uh, be a lot better. They should be uh, simply because the Giants are not the Giants are not going to be as good as they were last year, as we've seen. No, and there should be room. For the Padres to be particularly good. All right, last topic. I said you have a freebie here. One other uh, thing that you wanted to bring up.
2: What do you got? I am fascinated by your Mets lineup, and I'll tell you why. First of all, we know they're hot. They they have scored forty four runs on fifty nine hits during their five game win streak over the last two games. Thirty three hits. That's a that's an exceedingly rare formula, if I'm to call it that, in today's game. And here's where I'm here's where I'm going here, Mark. They obviously have an old school manager, although he employs new school tactics. And I think their lineup has sort of adapted an old school approach. And here's what I mean by that. Right now, um, only 30% of the runs the Mets have scored this season have come from the home run ball, 30%. The only three teams uh, that own a lower rate are a combined 42 games under 500. The Mets, as it stands today, are 17 games over 500. i I'm fascinated by the idea of a team building a lineup with the ability to hit three singles in a row. It has been proven to be nearly impossible in today's game, based upon the quality of, especially arms coming out of the bullpen, across the league. But two months is a pretty durable sample size that say, this team might have the ability to do it. And given the strong correlation between contact rate and postseason success for various lineups across the league, at least in recent years, in my judgment, the way that the Mets have built it is a more sustainable, or more um, promising formula, to use that word again, than, for example, the Yankees or any number of teams who you know, might get as many as half of their runs from the home run ball. Obviously, these things are anecdotal, and it's sort of hard to study them um, as sort of a matter of you know, putting anything in concrete. But all that to say, I'm fascinated by the way the Mets score runs and whether or not that can be a winning strategy come October.
0: I think that's a very good one to uh, to close on. I think it's pretty simple for the Mets. The Mets have the players with the track record that this should be where they're at. Maybe a little bit, maybe they're a little bit better than where they should be right now. Uh, the question for the entirety of the season is simply going to be, uh, can they stay healthy for 162 games all the way across the board? This, mm. Thus far, they've been able to survive their injuries because they have considerable depth at, at a number of spots, uh, particularly in the starting lineup. All right, Hembo, uh, thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, we will enjoy watching you on Get Up. Later, man. Thanks for having me. And this wraps up this episode. For Dalton Varsho, Bobby Scales, and Paul Hembikidis, I'm Mark Simon. Thank you for listening to the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast.